Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Oh, it's a goal. Who got the assist? Who got the assist? Hello, so after the end of the highest ever goal-scoring game week, we're back to pick over the wreckage with, it's fair to say, contrasting fortunes on the pod this week. Now, apologies for one day later than usual, but that's because of a time zone difference, as you'll find out in terms of who our guest is this week. We do, of course, like to challenge them, but making them record at 3 or 4am is probably more torture than a captain fail, so we thought we'd kind of leave it to the next day. Right, let's go on with it. It's a long old pod here. Nick, you're all right. Would you mind introducing our guest? Hey, Tom. Yeah, I'm, I'm good, thanks. It, it was a, definitely a, a punishing game week for me with 44 goals scored in the Premier League, which was a record. Unfortunately, my team only got three of those. Just a reminder who we are. We are Who Got The Assist. You can um, find us on Twitter, generally at WGTA underscore FPL or at WGTA underscore Nick or at FPL Stag or also on Instagram. And uh, welcome to the new listeners as well. Don't forget to hit subscribe if you like what you hear. Finally, if you want to join our mini league, the code as well is CPSULF. So, yeah, as Tom alluded to, we're delighted to be joined by Late Riser uh, this game week, otherwise known as Pranil Chef, uh, India's number one manager last season and infamous upside chaser. And you can find him on Twitter as well, at LateRiser12. He's also recently launched a pod with fellow FPL veterans Big Man Bakar and Zofar called the FPL Wire, which you can also find on all the pod repositories. So, Late Riser, Pranil, thanks for joining us. How are you? I'm doing good. Uh, excited to be here talking to you guys. Uh, I've been uh, listening to you guys for most of last year, enjoyed the pods and uh, also very recently realized how much hard work goes into it. So yeah, looking forward to this. Evening everyone and welcome Late Riser. Great to have you joining us for the pod and uh, great timing for us to get you this week given that your wildcard is active along with so many others. Uh, as for this week's pod and fitting the backdrop with so many wildcards active, we'll be considering how we pick a player in FPL in this pod. Later on after the break we'll have a mini league update and the correspondence section. A bit better than usual in that it is a deep focus on the Sterling versus KDB debate. And we're going to finish off then as standard with quickfire listener questions and look at our transfers and captains. However, before all that, we'll have the game review and market forces. Cool, right. Game review. Who, uh, who came lowest this week? I got 56. 
Oh no, it could, it could be me. It could be me. I got, Ooh, really? I got 46. <laughs> 46. Can we do any worse? 45, yeah. It's like the worst the episode of Antiques Roadshow ever. 48. <laughs> 48. <laughs> All right. Okay, Pranil, uh, do you want to go first? Let us know how the game week went. It was terrible. Uh, I mean, I had uh, <laughs> Aubameyang, Fernandez, St. Max in midfield. Uh, oh. I had Dele Ali who didn't start. And I had Bisuma coming on for him. I thought he did well to give me a good three points. I was happy about that. Then he goes on and gets that red card right at the end. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so it was all terrible and it started off so well. The first game of the week was Everton. I had Calvert-Lewin got me a hat-trick. I thought, okay, finally, something good's going to happen. Then just a sad story after that. Yeah, well, mine wasn't much better, to be honest. One point more than you. I don't want to moan too much because I've certainly seen some really bad horror shows on um, on Twitter. Likes of Hindu Monkeys had things 23 at a minus four or something. So that that's pretty damn terrible. But I did look at my game week rank this week, which was 4.9 million, which was actually worse than any of last season. So last season, my worst game week rank was 4.8 million. So not not a good start to the season. With, yeah, it wasn't great. Just Aubameyang was the captain. He only got an assist, which was pretty rubbish. And I guess my only get-outs were Mitrovic, who turned up with a brace out of nowhere. And uh, James Justin also got a bit of a surprising goal. But everyone else blanked. And also, you know, Luca Dean, who I brought in for Van Dyke, cost me a net minus six on that transfer. So so that didn't work out very well. I was uh, particularly unhappy during that Everton game when everyone else was returning and Dean just was sitting on a one-pointer. You were not very happy, Danny, on the, on the slack way. <laughs> and no. Anthony? Yeah, not as catastrophic, uh, 48 points. Um, so drop, I guess. Anyone who had a good week in game week one typically had a bad game week two, unless they happened to be very good with their transfers. So with that in mind, to be at a 1.2 mil overall rank after two weeks, I think I'll take it with the way things are all quite bunched up at the moment. I moved Ings to Richarlison, so that was pretty much no gain. Captain de Bamiang, like everyone and their mother, so that was 10 points there. And then it's Alexander-Arnold and Justin, seven points each. And then the rest was Cat. Fair enough. And uh, I've got 56 this week. I entitled this on Twitter, me in the bedroom, because it started really well and ended meh. I moved in Hammers, took out Kai Havertz and got the instant reward. I got 12 points there for him. And, you know, it was all looking up, 24 from the first two players after that. Yeah, nothing really happened. Aubameyang with the assist. Uh, you know, Trent with one point from, from the clean sheet. Justin with the random goal. I only got two goals this week from the ridiculous number of goals there were. And we're all nodding here, so I guess it kind of sums up the kind of week it was for a lot of people. But yeah, uh, 56. Uh, the rank doesn't matter, but it just, it just felt really underwhelming with people you know, celebrating Son and celebrating X, Y, and Z. And you're like, oh, I really wish that my players came through like that, but they just didn't this week. So I've taken them on eight, actually. So, but maybe I've taken, I'm, I'm already where Anthony is, but. Minus so, eight. Yeah, I'll take them on, yeah. Spoilers. <laughs> anyway, uh, let's go to the market forces then, see who else is as rash as I have been. Uh, Nick, man across numbers. Let's be a bit quicker this week, but just to summarise, what's been going down? I think a lot of managers were punished by the madness of the market last week because we saw like heavily sold players like Son and Ings punishing their uh, sellers and also people that did moves like Salah to Mane, as we said before, falling victim to the red roulette there. So uh, a lot of managers last week were punished, but this week it's Dominic Calvert-Lewin, actually, that's uh, the most popular player right now to bring in with 640,000 transfers in at time of recording. He's he's not going to be playing West Brom every week, but um, certainly with four goals um, 
in two games so far, a lot of people are looking at him and thinking, can he do better um, than he did last season? Obviously, during the post-lockdown period, he was particularly dry, but good start for him. Otherwise, it's also Son Heung min um, as I said, 424,000 transfers out last week, uh, but already 550,000 transfers back in. So many people perhaps even just yo-yoing uh, between Son. And actually, um, just on the, the transfers outside, we've got almost the... The opposite there with Bruno Fernandes, he's, he's the fourth most transferred out midfielder right now, um, was on the top five transfers in last week, but already 237,000 managers have sent Bruno packing straight away. And that looks like another transfer perhaps that, that might bite people in the posterior. Yeah, I really couldn't get over just the kind of the constant theme, really, of players that we had in our Mosul last week banging. So amongst the ones you named, so we've Son, Mane, Aubameyang, if you count it, Ings, Mitrovic, Antonio, Kane, they were among the top 10 in terms of players sold last week. And then they, they go and do pretty well this week. So definitely, uh, impatience definitely uh, not being rewarded. Yeah, definitely. Otherwise, third most transferred in player is uh, James Rodriguez with 540,000 transfers in. He really impressed in game week one and game week two. Um, and Everton have some really good fixtures. So a lot of love for him right now. Also, Bamford, he was top last week, but still popular with 400,000 transfers in. He's risen 0.2 million already in value. However, he's got some tougher fixtures coming up with likes of Sheffield United and Man City up next. So we'll see how he gets on. And finally, in terms of the top five most transferred in, we've also got Kevin De Bruyne. Um, so uh, a lot of people now looking at him. Um, obviously, they didn't have a game in game week one, but game week two, he looked really, really impressive. So 420,000 managers have also brought him in for the goal and assist. And it's rumoured he's going to be playing a number 10 position. He's on penalties as well. So a lot of love for, for De Bruyne right now. Yeah, we'll definitely see. And, you know, what Stag alluded to, all of that sort of the roller coaster. I said that really poshly. The roller coaster of uh, ups and downs and ins and outs of the transfer market has definitely caused some introspection. One person who has kind of come forward is uh, Mark from Front Football Scout, who's uh, obviously the Don. And he said that would locking prices for the first four game weeks improve the game and make it more accessible? He said it's a frustration for seasoned managers who get driven into points hits and wild cards to avoid drops. And he says also it's got to be worth putting, you know, to newcomers, especially with the system obviously not being particularly clear. I mean, Pranel, what do you think? Would you be in favour of, you know, the first four game weeks having locked prices? I am not in favour of locking the prices. I think uh, it adds an element of variance and, you know, we have a clear differentiation between the guys who are patient versus the guys who are aggressive. And FPL is a game of temperament, right? So let let us have that uh, you know factor of variance between the two styles of managerial play. I mean, uh, we don't have to play FIFA in amateur mode, right? So yeah, I think it's a good thing. Yeah, no, I agree. I think the market is a unique part of FPL, which forces you know the risk and reward calls, which make it all the more enveloping, engaging. I guess. I mean, you know, the, for example, the sales this week: Aubameyang 500k, uh, inferred Timo Werner 286,000 sales ahead of West Brom. You've got to be looking at that and thinking, "Wow, okay, that's a risk reward call." That hopefully Werner owners going to be think owners going to be thinking, "Well, I'm going to be on the right side of that." And I kind of wonder as well whether if you've got it frozen for the first four game weeks that when the market does reopen in game week four, we'd all be sat on a pretty similar sort of team, wouldn't we? After looking at the first four weeks of data and just kind of thinking, well, okay, I can wedge all these players into 100. I mean, it doesn't quite happen with Sky, but I just don't like it as much. But Pernil, maybe just to build on that a little bit, would you be pro if the actual system for price changes was more transparent? I personally don't really care too much about the prices. So I'm, I'm okay with them not being so transparent. I think it adds an element of uncertainty, chaos, panic, which I think is good for the game generally. I, I don't think it should be so easy. You know? So, yeah. 
Okay, that, that's fair enough. So I yeah. think I'd probably be on the side of a little bit of transparency with the actual price changes would be nice, just so that you don't make the transfer on a Tuesday before a Champions League game or something later in the season when you know you could make it on the Wednesday and know what's going to happen. But as you say, a little bit of chaos is nice. But I, after weeks like game week two, I find there's enough chaos in FPL as it is. I quite like the wildness of, of the prices as well. And I, I'd say maybe you could freeze the prices for the first week, but I don't know about freezing them for the first four. I think certainly... Like it does create a bit of clamour, a bit of excitement. You know, everyone's drafting in players in and out to kind of catch the rise at the beginning of the season, which can add an extra element to the game, which is quite exciting. And it's not like the prices are like increasing rapidly or, or too crazily anyway. We're only talking about a couple of players that have gone up 0.2 so far. So I don't think it's like we're seeing, you know, a player jump up 0.6, 0.7 within a couple of weeks and instantly unaffordable. It's, it's pretty relaxed, I think. Yeah, it's it's not the end of the world, is it? If a player goes up or down 0.1, he says sitting on the minus eight, taking it because a player was dropping 0.1. Anyway, um, I think the chaos that Anthony alluded to is a very, very good sort of environment for the pod that we're about to do, which is what we look for in an FPL player. That's the kind of the salient question we'll be looking at today. Perfect with Pernod on here because obviously the guy is an absolute god at spotting that player just before he's about to break. I mean, we're thinking Martial, Hattrick and Sheffield United here, aren't we? But to do this, we're going to look at a few kind of factors that may um, influence why we look at an FPL player, both, I guess, in terms of a transfer and also in terms of a captain. Broadly, of course, this is going to break down into the age-old eye test versus data debate. Yes, you'll be very pleased to hear we'll be looking at that today. Um, but hopefully giving it a WTA spin, hopefully giving it a little bit of a kind of a strategic look rather than just kind of saying that guy looked pretty good. He's worth buying because he's got five shots in the last two games. Let's start off with the eye test, one that always crops up every year. You hear people kind of going, oh, you know what? Yeah, you know, I, I don't really like stats. It's all about the eye test. So in, in terms of the eye test, what are we looking for from a player that we're kind of scouting for FPL reasons? Pranil, let's go with you first so to set the groundwork. What sort of things are high in mind for you when you're eyeing a player up to potentially come into your team? The few things I look at, I mean, he needs to be a goal scorer, he needs to be in and around the box. I, I am generally more attracted to the goal scorer kind of players compared to the assisters that we have. That's why I've never owned KDB too much last season. And uh, I think I need to change that thinking in my mindset. Uh, somebody is around the box, in and around the box, even if he's not getting the chances, you know, if there's somebody putting in the cross, is he around the area where somebody's going to be connecting the cross? That's something I look at. And that's a practice I have actually when I'm watching match of the day, you know, where I'm sitting with the fixture, sitting with the stats, and then watching the game. And after every game that I see the highlights, I actually go through the fixtures and the stats at that same time. So it sort of registers in my head. And one other thing that I look at is uh, how well the team is playing. Is the team creating a high enough volume of chances? Uh, when we talk about uh, you know Spurs last season post-restart, uh, Kane and Son were in the conversation, but I just didn't think Spurs were creating as many chances, which is why I felt like I didn't want to go there. Uh, even the quality of the chances uh, matters. You know, we're going to talk about big chances later. But that's why I've always been, uh, you know, attracted to a person like Sadio Mane because he gets. Uh, people talk a lot about his conversion rate, but his conversion rate is good because the quality of the chance that he gets is always high. You know, he always gets chances in and around the box. Uh, and uh, generally, in terms of form, things you can look at is if a player is not scuffing a shot or not snatching at them. If you remember Salah last season, you know, post restart. He was trying too hard. You could see that while watching the game. Uh, you know, he was scuffing or Snatching chances. At it, yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's those are the few things that I look for when I'm watching the game when it comes to the eye test. 
Oh, very interesting sort of qualitative uh, edge to those but certainly as you say you've got the, the kind of your, your like, i'm imagining you like watching football on one screen right in front of you and having like a tablet and a laptop open and you've got it all sort of there just looking through it yeah really interesting uh anthony nick uh, what sort of things do you look at when you're watching um you know premier league match and you're, you're trying to apply the eye test sometimes it's those players that look like they're performing really well on the pitch but they're not necessarily good for fpl and i think that's the, the distinction that we have to sometimes call out i've seen it before with um well-known troll um, Eden Hazard, you know, he was winning sort of man of the match week in, week out, but he wasn't returning any FPL points during that particular period that I owned him. And you've got other characters like that, you know, Wilfred Zahar from previous seasons, he had a good start so far this season, but previous seasons, you see him on the ball a lot, you know, looking like he's making lots of runs forward, but would inevitably be fouled and then the chance would be squandered and it's also not get any returns and then on the offhand you've also got these characters that we, we mentioned you know the likes of Mitrovic or Jamie Vardy's you know the, the famous example and he's been a good example as well from the start of this season he's, he's not really been in the game you know he's barely touching the ball his, his you know his touches are you know very very low in terms of what he's actually doing but it's his positioning he's he's not you know great for statistics and we always call out Vardy kind of defies the statistics but he's there he's waiting he's waiting for that chance to pounce on to to put into the back of the net so he's kind of the perfect example of someone who's good on the eye test but not necessarily from a statistical standpoint just to build I guess on what the lads have said to a degree I think what the eye test allows me to do is to contextualize the data that we see by understanding the tactical role of a player. So you have, let's say with the attackers, to use those exam- that example again, you, have, you need to understand why a player is taking such a volume of shots, maybe seeing that they're a wing player who's involved in the game, and I'm using involved there with quotes, so your Richarlison's, your Harvey Barnes's, your Mo Salah's, and contrasting that with your fox-in-the-box Vardy-type players who... If you look at the stats, he's not going to scream at you. He's not going to scream out with his numbers in terms of numbers of shots. But if you see how he plays over the course of seasons, especially, you start to understand the data and start to understand his role in the team is just to get those shots and pretty much do nothing else. Also, what the eye test is quite useful for understanding is the quality of the team around a player and how players... Yeah, their relationships are on the pitch and who intersects with who. So the likes of a, a, a person who knits play like David Silva used to do, who, yes, he would assist the assister a lot and that's quite frustrating, but he would still record double figures for assists by being part of such a goal scoring side, being in the right part of the pitch and inevitably creating um, chances with incisive passes from time to time. Uh, and look, of course, it's no comparison is perfect, but take Yuri Tillemont, for example, um, at Leicester, like Leicester score less. Tielemans is not typically giving a final ball to Vardy if you look at the, the, any of their matches. So he doesn't have that same attraction that someone like David Silva was, even though they play similar, and I'm getting my quotes out for similar again, assisting the assister typically type roles. James Ward-Prowse is another who you could kind of put into that category. Yeah, and that certainly makes sense. I think the only other thing as well that I'd throw in without reiterating a few really good points that have been made is uh, for the lesser teams, one thing I do always look for is a set-piece setups. 
Um, so on the pre-season pod, I mentioned Conser uh, at Aston Villa, who scored this weekend. And I was actually a little bit annoyed because I moved him out for ailing. I think that was one of the last things that I did. And I was just kind of looking at a 15-pointer, thinking, oh, if only, if only. Uh, but that, that was something I noticed in the restart, that he and I think House had a very, very good start to the restart. And Conser kind of came in as Mings's kind of number two. And throughout the course of that restart, he was always one of the, the targets for both a knock-on and also um, just the key target itself for those greedish deliveries. So in terms of those smaller teams, that set play, POMO sort of thing is something that I do always look for. I completely agree with what Pranil was saying about the quality of chances. It's things like the creative players as well, who they're passing it to, um, who they're not passing it to as well. Like, you can definitely see that sometimes that a certain player isn't quite, it's not quite working for them. I'm thinking Jose Perez last year, making the runs when he first went to Leicester, but the runs that were getting in the way of everybody else. And as soon as he got taken off and all Brighton was brought on, the team functioned a lot better. So little things like that, I think, are very, very good in- indicators as well. Perez's example is actually really good because then you start to notice the system and the pattern of play that the team has. I mean, and the best example for this is Doherty at Wolves, right? Because we knew that if the bo- ball came on the other side, it was his job to get inside the box to meet the end of the cross. Now, that is yeah. something which you no- notice is a consistent pattern of the play for that team. So that's something you watch out for as well. Absolutely. In terms of um, how stats and uh, the eye test sort of in- intertwine, I guess, um, there's always that question, would you ever buy a pair on the eye test alone? I, I don't think any of, any of us would in the pub without doing kind of a general Vox Pop here. Um, I think the fundamental truth behind that is, is that I think the, f- the four of us could all watch a game of football. And I think the, f- the four of us would all have a different take on what happened. And it's very, very good to contextualize and moderate that with stats. So the eye test is obviously a very subjective thing. You see what you see and see what you want to see in some cases. So say, you know, I fancy bringing a player in this week. I'm watching them and I, I kind of think, oh yeah, they look fantastic. Forgetting other things, confirmation bias, yeah. The stats, I guess, are more objective. Uh, caveats around research bias, of course, but they kind of help you kind of put things together and create a full picture. The eye test is always useful, but it's contextualized by stats. So in terms of these key stats and definitely something that I'm guessing, Pranil, you're looking at a lot being on the wild card at the moment. Uh, what sort of key metrics are the ones which catch your eye? Which ones are you looking at? Which ones do you value? Uh, so when it comes to the players and the attackers, the two big stats that I always look at are shots in the box and big chances. I think these two personally give me the clearest indication in terms of who is going to uh, you know, get those FPL points. And one stat that I always like looking at is the offensive and defensive form of teams as well. How much are the teams creating in terms of shots in the box and big chances? And how much are teams conceding in terms of shots in the box and big chances? And I try to then look at the fixture ticker and try to see that who, who's going to face these teams who are going to concede a lot of shots in the box and big chances. Do you just focus on goals? Do you look to assists at all? I think that's a weakness in my game because I primarily, when it comes to attackers, focus on goals. To look at the assists, I look at the XGI stat, but my primary focus is on the shots in the box and big chances. And exception to that is uh, players like De Bruyne. But uh, oh, yeah, in- I'm about to say it probably explains how you didn't have De Bruyne maybe more. Yeah, in previous yeah and, and I think what I need to filter in my head is the quality of the player. Because yeah, De Bruyne plays deeper, but uh, you know, even if he's 10 yards further, the quality of his pass is much greater than anybody else in the league. So that's something you need to factor in as well. I think for me, uh, it's it's a largely similar set in terms of my forwards and midfielders. It's the shots, it's the shots in the box. I compare those two a bit and to the team. Non-pen XG is a big deal for me. And who's on pens? I know that's not a key stat, but it is definitely a factor, which I would have considered before. And I'm definitely considering now these this season. Chances created and big chances created are definitely something that I look into as well. To be honest, maybe the opposite of Pernil, I've 
probably put too much emphasis on assists and chances created in the past to the detriment of just not getting the bloody points into my team. Uh, in terms of defenders, um, uh, in terms of defenders, it's in terms of the team, it's the shots in the box conceded and their XGC. Then I look to stuff like the defenders' chances created and their final third touches. Just I feel if they're if they're out that end of the pitch, they'll pass the ball to somebody and get an assist every so often, which is obviously better than not. Uh, then I look to set pieces if they take them, great. And then I look at the chances from set pieces, which I guess is Tom's concert rule from previously. I just look at that as like a ballpark idea of like, is this guy's head getting on the end of crosses? One of them will go in eventually, and so that's how I'd pick out a centre back, for example, that goes up for a corner. In the past as well, Nick's man Rico, there's been who's taken the free kicks and the corners as well. I think that's one of the parameters that got Nick uh, involved with uh, the Bournemouth man. I look at stuff like penalty box touches as well, and that's an indication of who's in the getting into the right positions, who's um, you know creating those chances, who's getting those chances, um, shots on target, obviously shots inside the box, chances created, big chances created, all key stats. I think with the defenses, I try and look at some of the team stats as well. So I'm always interested in an attacking defender, of course. So I look at some of those same metrics, but I also look at the team stats to see how they're doing in terms of how many shots they're conceding, you know, how many goals they've conceded, and also how decent is their goalkeeper as well so for instance with Chelsea you've got characters like Kepa which will put you off the Chelsea defence but you know obviously with when you had Dean Henderson at Sheffield United that was one of the the most important factors in regards to owning a Sheffield United defender and you know as I highlighted with Ramsdale I don't necessarily think Sheffield United defences are strong with, with Ramsdale in goal compared to Henderson uh, fair enough. I think maybe I'm lazy, um, but all I really look at these days, and you guys look at a lot of the analogue data, the big chances and shots and things like that, I just look at the expected data now. It contextualises the eye test very nicely for me and sums it all up in one sort of nice little neat package. Um, I hear what you guys are saying, and I completely agree in terms of the broad idea, which is for offensive players, you look at individual metrics, and for defences, you look at kind of team metrics, and that completely makes sense. Like With the expected data, what I really like is the fact that it helps me sort of filter the understanding of what's going on so for example last year Jack Grealish second most chances created you think about it, thinking wow that looks incredible and um, when we look at the quality of the chances he's created in the data itself he created those 91 chances but last year his XA was just 8.22 that's 13th from the list so for 91 of his chances only nine of them are big chances only a 10% ratio of them basically compared to Richarlison yeah he's not a creative player but 39% of the chances he created were big chances what this means is Grealish creates volume but he doesn't create quality compare that to someone like Richarlison yeah okay he's got Dominic Cavalier or whatever um, but it does mean he's creating best quality chances so he's got a better chance of scoring you points effectively and if you add in yes Mr Samata and Mr Wesley being the people who have to eat the dinner that Grealish is creating it kind of helps you kind of understand okay great kind of headline analog stat and he looks fantastic in the game but how much quality is he adding to you're, a, you're in good company Tom because uh, actually Fabio Borges he's a very well-known manager who's sitting on I think number one spot in the FFS Hall of Fame he swears by the expected data when it comes to the stats and he primarily looks at only that yeah but I'm a crap manager and he's a good manager I don't know how that works <laughs> <laughs> but I think and the only one as well that I just quickly to mention is XGI that's kind of my king stat um, just because it basically is our points close if you compare that to the delta um, how much are they expected to be involved in goals or assists and what's the difference I know that's something that Fabio also looks at as well so I'm kind of quite happy about that that's something I've always looked at uh, so it, it sounds like kind of yeah broadly 
player that's good who passes all those sort of markers for the defence. It's those team metrics. For the offences, it's those sort of individual metrics. But what about things like kind of fixtures, ownership, all these sort of other sort of data points which are in the FPL universe? What other ones do we pay attention to? I mean, Pranel, you're on record on Twitter as saying F the template again and again and again. That probably covers ownership. And for you, it's quite an individual sort of path you try to forge, right? Yeah, yeah. Does ownership matter? Actually, so my, my outlook towards ownership is a little different and I'm very opportunistic when it comes to ownership. So when I'm uh, making my team players, I barely ever scroll into the eye on the FPL page and look at how much ownership they have. My decision making is based on solely what I see. And then, like you said, you know, it's validated by the stats that we sort of contextualize what's happening in the game. But uh, ownership is something I'm interested in primarily during the captaincy decision. And when there's a 50-50 call or a 40-60 call, and if I see that there's a low-owned player who presents an opportunity to make big grounds uh, in terms of points, it's something I'm drawn towards, especially if I'm owning the highly owned player, you know, so that's sort of insurance because you have 100% effective ownership anyway. So that that's something I look at in terms of being opportunistic rather than, you know, the, the more shield concept that people talk about. I don't tend to focus too much on ownership or who's in the Twitter template. I kind of, you know, try and forge my own kind of plans in terms of who I'm picking, who's in my team and, and kind of base it on my own decisions. I try not to let myself get influenced overly by by the template and, and stuff like that. I think in regards to fixtures, I think fixtures are very, very important. You know, I'm always looking to, to target those weakened teams or those teams that look poor. Um, you know, like the Bournemouth, for instance, from last season, this season, I think it's going to be all be about who's playing Fulham or who's playing West Brom or even Southampton if they um, try and if they don't sort out their defence so uh, and their high line. So I think fixtures are very, very important um, and something that I strongly consider when I'm making my transfers. Another question for you, actually, Pranil, based on the fixtures there. What To what extent do you look at home and away fixtures, especially maybe with captaincy, I guess, as opposed to picking players and then especially in the context of lockdown, this has been something I've been kind of harping on about a little bit in the slack lately, is why are people still talking about home and away as if it's the big deal when there's nobody in the stadiums? It's just, you know, it's just another cavernous building. Yeah, it, it doesn't influence my think, uh, thinking as much as it should, especially since lockdown that you mentioned, because I think the advantage isn't as great as it used to be. And, uh, you know, when we're captaining players, we're generally looking at teams like Manchester City or Liverpool, or if they're in form, Chelsea or Man United. And, when it comes to these teams, it's primarily about the quality of the attack. So I don't think home and away matters as much when it comes to the quality and the difference in quality between the opposition and the current team being so drastic. Okay, that's actually that's quite interesting. I guess for me, ownership, especially now at the start of the season, it's a big, you know, it's, it's not really that important. Although as the season does develop, I do pay quite a bit of attention, probably more attention than I should, to the top 10k ownership just to get an idea of, I guess, where I might be vulnerable more than anything. And if I feel I need to address that, then fair enough in other things that maybe kind of might interest me in terms of like assessing my stats i tend to try and look at let's say eight or nine games tends to be my kind of perfect amount of time to look back but at the same time you have to take into account fixture difficulty then and of course on the horizon for a player you're looking at and then i think something that we've just omitted and we should probably talk about is something that i probably haven't put enough emphasis on and i think we should all be kicking ourselves we didn't talk about it on last week's pod and it's tactical and it's something like Southampton's insanely high line. It was already an issue for them against Crystal Palace um, with Wilfred Zaha. He had a few opportunities, one of them outside, offside, another one he scored from, another one he missed, um, basically against that same line that Son and Kane exploited to wonderful effect at the weekend. And like, it was a complete liability against Spurs. And maybe we should be paying greater attention to it. 
But at the same time, there is the aspect of you couldn't possibly have expected Ralph Hasenhutl to walk into that trap and you know, give us such a disaster class in t- Premier League football tactics as well. No, definitely not. It, was, it reminded me, funnily enough, of when Pep Guardiola first faced Leicester City as, as Manchester manager and he played a high line against Jamie Vardy of all people. And you're kind of thinking, all right, dude, I mean, on one, on one hand, you've got, right, this worked fine for me everywhere else. But I mean, Vardy just tore him to pieces, didn't he? It was the they year kind of... after Leicester had won the title as well. Their form was crap. Ranieri was still the manager and Vardy got a hat-trick out of nowhere. Like, yeah, sure. Yeah. It, was, it was very much kind of, it was almost like hubris on Pep's part, just thinking, oh, my taxes will be out of these guys. No, definitely not. Uh, maybe it's a case of going back to what Pranil was saying when in terms of the team and looking at the team when you're doing the eye test and helping to spot those sort of team patterns. That sort of thing is quite useful. And in, in that way, kind of that's more like a team weakness, perhaps, like yeah. how they got it. And of course, that kind of comes out in the stats as well, like where teams are conceding chances from, uh, for example. So maybe this weekend, you may be looking at the fact that um, James Justin and Timmy Castagna uh, can't seem to defend at all. Uh, so maybe someone like Raheem Sterling may be a good shout. You never know. Good you mentioned about, uh, you know, uh, Ralph and uh, Pep, because also when you're reading the games week on week, especially for the captaincy decision, it's important to take into context uh, whether the manager tends to game manage or he's very principled in terms of these are my principles and I'm going to play this way, you know, when you're talking about, let's say, a Bielsa or a Ralph, because they're very stubborn in terms of, no, this is my playstyle, I'm going to proceed with this and I'm not going to game manage no matter what. So that's something you take into context as a read after the game against uh, Spurs. Oh, yeah, certainly. certainly. I, I definitely like what you're saying about kind of reading the game there and kind of making that work in terms of what your decisions are and how everything sort of knits together. Uh, the final thing I just wanted to mention as well uh, in terms of, I think we started mentioning it earlier in terms of eight or nine sort of fixtures in the past, something that's kind of been on my mind a little bit over the last few weeks and it's definitely going to be an acute thing next week uh, with a, a Chelsea playing West Brom is at what point do we kind of start to size up one of the newer players to the league and think, oh, actually, you might be worth it. So I think we, I think we probably all started perhaps with one of the new players to the league in our team game week one. I certainly had Kai Havertz, for example, which was absolutely terrible. Um, like, do we go for these sort of tried and trusted players always, every single time? Um, or do we kind of uh, you know, take risks? Do we use things like you know, scout reports and things like that and kind of hope a player's going to work, especially in the case of someone like Timo Werner? Like, do players need to have that sort of long-term history to, uh, to be of interest to us? Or would we take a punt, for example, the kind of Mo Salah straight into the league and smashing it sort of situation? Bruno? I, 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 I don't mind taking the gamble. I also think like it, it adds exact excitement and fun to the game. And at the end of the day, you're playing the game for fun, right? So if you're getting a player who's uh, looking exciting and you have a hunch that he's going to do well in the league, go for it. And we've had uh, you know, people talk about the poor cases, but they're, they're, we've had enough good cases as well. You know, Diego Costa, he came into the league, he started off on a good note and Mo Salah is one. You know, we've had enough examples of people who started off really well. So I think uh, it's fine. Take, take, take that gamble if you really feel it. And I mean, why are you playing the game if you're not backing those hunches that you had? So I, mean, I did that. I kind of backed my hunch on Kai Havertz after watching him in the Bundesliga. And he and Timo Werner, as I said last week, just night and day, weren't they, in terms of how good they were in the first in the first game, certainly, and in the first couple of games. It's just, just extraordinary like how some players really just take to it like a duck's water and other players really kind of dipping their toes in and they kind of just just slowly getting used to it and um, but absolutely i think having fun especially is absolutely huge and um, why don't you back yeah. your hunch as well oh, it's one of those things that the fpl twitter environment and social media uh, can definitely kind of push you out of right yep, yep.
Cool. All right. So I think just in terms of rounding off, and that was a really good discussion. I think overall, it just sounds like in terms of the eye test, that kind of helps us spot players, spot patterns, spot team patterns. And that helps us contextualize the stats. And in those stats, we break up offense into individual data, defense into team data, and use that to create sort of a rounded picture, ideally. Um, but as Pranil said, have fun. It's always quite good to kind of back those hunches. And if a player doesn't quite conform to the stats, doesn't quite conform to what the zeitgeist is saying, but you fancy him, I, I always say, as you, may, as you may see me respond on Twitter, if you like it, go for it. That's definitely the case. But hopefully that's uh, helped you uh, in terms of how you assess if a player is good for you. And um, we're going to take a break now and come back to the Q&A after this. Who got the assist? Who got the assist? So we're back and it's time to catch up with the Who Got the Assist mini league. As I said earlier, if you want to join the league, the league code is CPSULF. And I'm just going to run through quickly the top six, perhaps, just because the guy in sixth just got an insanely deep, insanely good score. So that's Isma DSP with IDSFT. He got 133 points this game week, which is just an wow. incredible score. Uh, so that was a game week rank of 1,308. And uh, yeah, so he captained Son, obviously, for 48 points. We also had the likes of Kane and Ings and Zaha, just a, and also Alisson in goal. So just a huge, huge return there. Um, in fifth was Abid Rosham with Winnie the Kapue, he got 105 points. Uh, Gali Adicha uh, with 115 points in fourth. In third was James Dayton with Dyslexia Untied, he got 104 points. In second was 06 um, with 116 points. And in first was uh, Hirsch Pandya with FPL Mumbai, 120 points for him. He's um, 570th overall rank and also 15th in India. So a little bit of competition there, Pranil, this season. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I don't have a complete total for, combined with both game weeks that these guys have in one. So <laughs> you'll get there, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure you'll be leaving them in your dust very, very soon. All right, let's move on to the correspondence. And this week, it's actually uh, a boon to have the correspondence for once. It is. Uh, whoa, whoa! There's shots fired at the correspondence. Hanging, hanging by a, a cord, and I have the, my scissors. Just, just waiting for it to, to fail. But this week, we actually do have a very, very good piece of correspondence, don't we, Anthony? Yeah, yeah. This week's correspondence definitely falls under the category of an addendum, I guess, to last week's pod, and it's hyper-relevant as well. So last week, we were discussing the big Manchester City question, KDB or Sterling. And to be honest, all three of us just brushed through it too quickly, and we fell on the side of Sterling. Anyway, FPL Elf found on Twitter at, F- at ElfFPL where he offers, as he says himself, memes, gifs, and sass mixed with a bit of FPL. Quite rightly pulled us up on this with a fine letter of correspondence, which he sent to who got the assist at gmail.com. Hi, guys. On last week's pod, you had a question, KGB or Sterling? Nick initially opted for KDB, based mainly on him being highly owned. However, he switched to Sterling due to his explosive nature and his ceiling, which he thought was a lot higher than KDB's. Anthony Stagg opted for KDB, stating he's better before you turning to say he thinks that Sterling's ceiling is higher than KDB's, making him the better pick. Tom went for Sterling, calling it a case of goals over assists, and also said he could get you the explosive returns. So all three of you went for Sterling over KDB, basically due to him having the higher ceiling. But does he? Uh, Elf says that he couldn't be bothered to look deeply into the stats as that's what we're here for, right? But what Elf did do is he looked at their top 10 highest game week scores from last season. Sterling's highest was 21, KDB's was 19. Second highest for Sterling was 20, KDB again 19. Then KDB had seven scores of 11 points and above. Sterling only had three 
weeks where he went over 11 points. So, Elf finishes. So, whilst based on last year's returns, Sterling did just pip KDB for the high score. It was only by two points. Is that really enough to say that Sterling is a better pick due to his ceiling? KDB practically matched Sterling with the highest scores and was then far more prolific with his number of hauls. Or is it just a case that Sterling has the headroom to explode even further than this? Because if not, he can't really see a case for Sterling over KDB. He signs off with, I love you, Elf. Oh, thank you, Elf. Yes, uh, so okay. So I listen back, and uh, this is perhaps a positive in the correspondence sections column because it means that people are able to kind of say, right, hang on, that was a little bit rash. Because obviously, at this pod, we do like to say things which are evidenced, and um, I think the issue with the Q and A quickfire sometimes is that we're less prepared for those and may have given a reflection of our impressions rather than the facts. And I think this is a very interesting question, especially one which is a cropping up this week, as uh, we mentioned earlier. Lots of Aubameyang sales, and people either already made the decision or they're looking to kind of make their choice between uh, the ginger prince and raheem sterling um pranil i assume that you're straight on your man sterling right uh I, i'm currently uh thinking about going with both at the moment because i can't seem to separate them so i want to leave bad. that decision for later but but there's a there's a thinking behind it now uh we saw that kdb in the last game played uh for the forward than he does usually. And I was wondering about this preseason as well, you know, because if we don't have Dilva, what midfield is uh, Pep going to play? And uh, I thought KDP is playing further forward. And uh, that's why he'll be a little more predictable in terms of uh, captaincy options. What do you think, Tom? Well, I mean, I've re-examined the facts after doing this and I bought KDB. I did this before the Wolves game. Uh, so I've got the timestamp. I wasn't just influenced by that. And... Frankly, I see what you mean in terms of buying them both. Uh, so Sterling outscored KDB in the restart. KDB out- outscored Sterling for the season. Sterling managed goal involvement 32% of the City's games. KDB in 36. Per start, it kind of favours KDB. 39% for KDB, 34 for Sterling. In the restart, massively Sterling. 50% Sterling uh, GI, 37%. KDB GI. In terms of XGI though, uh, KDB was slightly above, but it's so close. It really is so close. And you had things, you know, remember that 5 0 uh, where he only got an assist in that game and he was just running the show despite bossing things? It kind of means that the XGI was probably a little bit undercooked for, uh, for De Bruyne. In terms of Elf said, in terms of space to grow, um, obviously you've got Sterling upward trajectory to bear in mind. So three seasons, 200 points, an average of 18 goals per season. Last year's 20 goals were his most ever. And KDB is an interesting one. I spoke to my friend We Rogue about this because obviously he was injured and then came back last season and we were kind of saying things like, oh, it could be a Yaya season for him last year. You know, it's very difficult to assess whether he's going to be able to keep this up. But the consensus seems to be, according to things like Understat, Stats Bomb, that he finishes hot, so he scores more than he should according to expected data and his passes are a lot better than they should be according to Opta XA. So it means players score more than average from the shots that he creates. Translating that into English, he's an elite player, shot horror, who in FPL terms has strong points potential in every game that he plays in. So earlier on, I mentioned that XGI was my kind of crowning stat. And I think Kevin De Bruyne is kind of the epitome of that crowning stat in FPL. Penalties, I should mention as well, are huge for me here too. There have been 13 penalties awards so far this season. Last year, it took us up until game week six to get to that number. So yeah, more penalties. Man City have got the second most penalties awards than of all teams. Um, they've got loads of players who have loads of touches in the box. They as a team have net highest touches in the box. I think they can have a lot of penalties. And um, despite the fact that, you know, there's on average one more penalty per team expected, I think that Man City will get more of those penalties. And the ownership, yeah, I don't really care about that. But 
it is in KDB's kind of ballpark at the moment. So all in all, I'm kind of just about on the side of KDB, but I can also see why you'd be going for Sterling if you were to kind of make that choice because the ownership's pretty low. The guy is consistently scoring goals. It's just the case that Kevin De Bruyne has more roots to points, as it were. Um, but that's why I kind of landed on KDB. I just, I just li- like to add a little bit of a uh, context here. So uh, basically, what I did is, uh, uh, I've done the goals plus assists per ninety for Sterling and De Bruyne versus opposition of different caliber. And what I noticed, what happened last season was Sterling didn't do really well against good defenses or average defenses, but he exploded against the weaker defenses. His uh, uh, scores were zero point three seven goals plus. A- plus assists per 90 against really good defenses, 0.4 goals per assist per 90 against average defenses, and 1.13 goals per assist against really weak defenses. So he does tend to have an explosive streak you know, against the weaker defenses. The case with uh, De Bruyne, though, is he's consistent, and he's really good against the good defenses as well as the middle defenses. That's because what we noticed tactically last season was against the good teams, De Bruyne tended to play further forward, having two defensive midfielders in the pivot. Now, that is something we might see more of this season because we don't have David Silva. So, uh, Pep mm. might play more defensive-minded midfielders behind him more regularly. So, that's something you need to be mindful about. Taking that into consideration and the penalty point that you spoke about, I feel like for a consistent stream of points, De Bruyne is a good uh, set-and-forget option. But when the fixtures turn green and they're really good, you need to get in Sterling and try hitting a massive haul just for the captaincy. Oh, yeah, oh, that certainly makes sense. Um, so it kind of is true that I, I think you call them sticky players, don't you? The, the sort of Kevin De Bruyne type, the one that you just don't move out of your team, yeah? The glue guys. The glue guys, that's it, yeah. yeah. And I think yeah. that's definitely definitely why I went for him as well, just because I think, well, I'm not going to be removing this guy, so I might as well get him in at base price, leave him there um, for the foreseeable future. Anyway, we've spoken enough. Uh, Nick, Anthony, what do you guys reckon? Anthony? I went off and dug some data myself on this. And what I did was I looked at last season and I looked at, in terms of per start for each player, their home form, their away form, and then how they did uh, against any all teams and against top teams. Um, what I think I found was that KDB is just better. In term, he's better overall. He vastly outperforms uh, his non Pen XG and he, so he scores in two of every five of his starts against all teams in the league. Sterling does score more times than KDB, of course. He scores through about three in every five starts last season, but he's vastly outperformed by KDB in terms of assist potential and especially in terms of the actual assists. So Sterling, um, even a few years ago, he had particularly good assist numbers last season. We've spoken about how much poorer he was, but his assists of 0.48 per start in 2018-19 was still quite a bit less than uh, KDB's 0.72 assists per start last season. So look, he would close the gap, but KDB would still be far ahead. In terms of home performances, it's basically a runaway show for KDB. He's about twice as good in terms of FPL points. He actually gets more goals than Sterling does at home. And he gets more assists as well, of course, but four times more assists per start. Uh, away, actually, Raheem Sterling was better last season. He, of course, outscores. Uh, KDB is getting a goal about one in every four starts. For Raheem Sterling, it's four in every five starts uh, away from home. Assists, De Bruyne, yes, better, but it doesn't make up for the fact that even Raheem Sterling is getting more bonus points away from home. And so Raheem Sterling last season ended up with 7.12 FPL points per start away from home, whereas Kevin De Bruyne was only 6.31. And then against the traditional top six plus Leicester last season, De Bruyne, 
much better on goals, much better on assists, much better on bonus points, three times better on bonus points, in fact. And so that ended up with uh, 7.73 points per game against those top teams versus Raheem Sterling. It was 5.27. So you're seeing this chasm that has developed. Then, um, and a bit of an addendum, our friend Desperately Seeking Seeking Dusan, who is at Seeking Dusan on Twitter, Alan, he has put together some stats as well, which looked at kind of the explosivity or the haul ability of these players. So for Alan, uh, haul was anything which was 10 points or above, and explosive was anything which was um, 16 or above. And the facts bear out that, okay, you could say that over the last few seasons, Raheem Sterling is more explosive, so he's going to get more of those, you know, over 16 pointers. So he's had eight in the past two seasons, uh, whereas De Bruyne only had three, of course, being injured for one of those seasons. But in terms of hauls, you would probably say that De Bruyne is just that little bit better. It was 10 last season versus nine for uh, Raheem Sterling. But there is a bit of a muchness of muchness there um, with regard to those particular statistics. Yeah, exactly. I think sort of, you know, sort of going back to FPOL in terms of how I originally answered that question, I, I've referenced Sterling perhaps being the more explosive of the duo, uh, which is mainly to do with their, their reputations and history as Sterling's. Obviously, he's got the reputation of being a goal scorer in simple terms and De Bruyne a creator with assists and, you know, the goals get five points for a midfielder, you know, to, to bring it down to granular level, the assists only get three points. And we've, in terms of hat-tricks, Sterling has four Premier League hat-tricks to his name. De Bruyne hasn't got a, a single one to his name as well. Uh, but obviously, yeah, when you factor in goals and assists, you know, you're talking about 15 or so points De Bruyne can easily make in, in a game week. And, you know, you saw this particular game week as well. It's very, very easy for him to to kind of get a haul, which is only to get a haul, you only need about three returns. You can get a goal and two assists and that that's the equivalent of a haul. And, and you're watching, watching Manchester City play, you, you kind of, you kind of back De Bruyne almost to do that week in, week out, especially now that he has the penalties. When you factor that in um, with Aguero being out, he's got those penalties and the fact that he's also, um, it's been announced that he's playing more of a number 10 position, more advanced. I know I sound like I'm flip-flopping a lot in terms of, who I'm going for, but I think the, these additional factors that we didn't have on previous uh, pods kind of leads me now towards more uh, De Bruyne. And I think De Bruyne, he has that additional consistency factor. If Sterling perhaps has the higher point ceiling, we're only talking, as Elf pointed out, you know, minimal points, one or two points here. And to, when you take away that consistency that De Bruyne has, then for me, he's, he's the, uh, the better FPO asset. Yeah, interesting, interesting. No, just to point out as well that um, so De Bruyne said that he didn't know whether he played the number ten or not, um, but it seems like, and I think Pernell was right in terms of how Pep may set up the team now without David Silva being around. It looks like Foden's uh, favoured on one of the one of the wide forward spurts rather than being a central player. So it could well be that you've got kind of like defensive sort of double pivot behind him, and De Bruyne are allowed to run right number ten. And how glorious will that be? Yeah. And just adding a little bit to that, uh, when you're judging Sterling based on the eye test section that we did, I think uh, in the middle part of the season, last season, he was hogging the touchline, which hasn't been the case uh, since the project restart and as well as the game that we saw last night against Full. He, he drifted in, he drifted into central positions more often than he did in the middle part of last season. So if he's continuing to drift in field, coming center, you know, if uh, Jesus is moving wide and putting crosses mm. in. If he's central, then he's still a good asset. So that's something you need to look at from the eye test, you know, when we talk about systems and iterations and all of that. 
I think I think a part of that factor as well is that Aguero is absent. So Gabriel Jesus is much better as a creator than Sergio Aguero. And so um, they kind of play off that and try and get Sterling into those positions because he is getting there on pace alone. But in terms of his actual finishing ability, as we all know, it's just not quite up to scratch. And it's nowhere near, let's say, KDB's either in terms of his outperformance of non-pen XG. It's, KDB was about doubling his non-pen XG. And so we're adding penalties to that formula considering his stats weren't too padded by penalties last season. And I think it, it makes him just particularly potent. I think digging through what everyone has said here, if you want a consistent captain, which is probably the secret in FPL, you probably go for Kevin De Bruyne. He's better against the, the top teams as well. You could even captain him against your Chelsea's or your Liverpool's, and it seems that he has a pretty good chance of returning for you. The thing is, is that as a flat track bully, and for if they're playing against a West Brom, it seems like Raheem Sterling sometimes gets the edge on him a little bit more often than KDB would you know, you, then you would normally expect KDB to edge him. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, hopefully food for thought there, Ralph. Hopefully you don't think of us as being the sort of people who just say things off the top of our head and actually bother to look into them. Uh, so that's the end of our correspondence anyway. Thanks very much. If you have any correspondence, be they addendums, thoughts, clarifications or ideas, email whogottheassist at gmail.com. Get them in before Tom kills the section. Yes, indeed, indeed. Well, um, from researched answers to answers off the top of our heads, let's go now into the quickfire Q&As. Thanks for the questions this week. I only put them up for about 10 minutes, so well done if you got those questions in. I apologise, I had 10 minutes to drink a cup of tea and I was going to another meeting. So getting the questions, getting it all together, yeah, you haven't got very long. Uh, let's start off with the first one, Zaha Gaga. And this could be one which is related to the eye test um, that we've seen. So FPL Fred asked if we're overlooking Wolf Zaha, given how good he looks and the fix to come for Crystal Palace so of course he's been filled as well in the number 9 role uh, up front I should say uh, for Crystal Palace uh, Zaha 7.0 what do we think about this guy uh, Pranil is he anywhere near that wild card of yours? Uh, in that price bracket currently based on what I've seen and the numbers I prefer uh, Harvey Barnes or Phil Foden I think that's Fair enough, to be honest, because I, I'd maybe dug a little bit into this. So he was definitely overlooked for game week one in spite of having a very good preseason. Uh, that was partly because Palace were poor in Project Restart. It was partly because Southampton and Manchester United, based on Project Restart form and last season's form, looked like a tough start. Southampton's kamikaze high line fed into Wilfred Zaha and then Manchester United just being abysmal played into it for him. So in the end, he ended up with six shots and he scored three times from those six and he's had a goal ruled out for offside as well. Now, the thing is, is that, okay, that's a 50% shot conversion. That's obviously not sustainable for Wilfred Zaha. In last season, which was obviously quite a poor season for him, you can say he was distracted or whatever, he had a 6% shot conversion to goals. The season before that, when he did score 10 goals, that's his career best so far in the Premier League, he, he converted about 15% of his shots. So he's obviously overperforming right now. To what extent, you can decide for yourself. The thing with Palace is that they do have very good fixtures from game week five, starting with Brighton and Fulham and then Wolves. Fine. The problem with game week five is that it's after the transfer deadline day, which is just after game week four. Now, the thing with Zaha is, is he playing for a move away? And this is a question that's being asked constantly. Roy Hodgson, after, um, after the game the other day, quoted it saying about a move, I have no idea if he'll leave. I look forward to going in, uh, into work with him every day. I'm a realist, and I realize that if, the club comes, if a club comes in and pays what the club thinks he is worth and he desperately wants to go, it would be hard for us to keep him. But until that day comes, there is no point in me speculating. So I'm not going to speculate too far off that, but I'm a bit concerned about how well Zaha will do after game week four, based on what we saw last season when he wasn't playing well, but did turn it on at stages. And this is kind of part of the problem with him, is that, okay, great, everything has looked good so far, but 
what next? Mm. I mean, what if you know players like Eberechi as he has come in, for example? Uh, there's you know, talk about Ryan Brewster coming in. Like, could these and Batshuayi has got a good relationship with him? I hear like you know, players like that could mean that suddenly the prospects of Palace look a little bit up. And I also wonder where else he'll go if he stayed in the Premier League. I mean, the doors of you know, the notional top six are probably closed. I mean, I'm not sure Everton would take him now either. Um, so where's he going to go apart from overseas? Um, you know, I, I completely see what you mean about the transfer window being a bit of a worry with him. Uh, one thing I would point out with Zaha is that he's got multiple routes to points, especially if this new penalty epidemic occurs. So Penn uh, touched in the box I mentioned earlier on and something that I'm, I'm going to be really paying attention to this year, uh, just because players with more touches in the box stand more chance of being fouled. And over the last couple of years, Wilfred Zaha has finished third and fourth for touches in the box behind the lights of Salah and uh, behind, just behind the lights of Hazard um, a couple of years ago. So it is definitely a player who is liable to get you those sort of pen assists, I suppose, as well as the goals. But it's very much up in the air with him. And I probably agree with Penel that there are other options within that price bracket that I'd be very interested in. One reason is that if Brewster comes, will Zaha play striker? He's been playing striker the first two games. So... That might work against him. Yeah, yeah. Be, I think it's just, it's probably a bit of a, a bit of a personnel issue why he's playing striker rather than that being his his role like it was a couple of years ago when he was reclassified, of course. Oh, all right then, brilliant. Uh, let's move on to the next question then. Uh, sorting it with the premiums. Uh, so Kumar Sanket uh, at LFC Bootroom asks if Salah slash Sterling or Mane slash KDB is preferable on a wild card to kind of carry through the sword slash shield sort of idea um i guess it's combinations of these players and i, I suppose we would be I, I don't know whether we'd be saying that it's a case of having salah at omane and uh, one of the city players or whether you kind of do both i mean Pranil, you're looking at two cities i'm guessing that means no liverpool for you that's what i'm contemplating right now currently i feel like the next two fixtures uh Leicester and Leeds for City scream goals. And I feel like Liverpool are playing Arsenal and Villa who aren't, aren't so defensively open. So I'm thinking of uh, playing the Sterling, Sterling card for the next two weeks because I think the fixtures suit him and then switching to Salah. That's what I'm thinking about right now. I think it's possibly a case of like trying to over-engineer your team. I guess if you're focused, I think we talked about ownership a little bit earlier on the pod, but if you kind of go for a sword slash shield, you're thinking, oh, I'll have the, the highly owned De Bruyne and, and the differential of Mane, or, or the other way around, the highly owned Salah and the differential of Sterling. I think ultimately, I wouldn't get too hung up on, on those sorts of things. In terms of the ownership, I, I'd focus on who you think is best primarily for your team, be it, you know, even a double city as Brunel's going for, you know, that might be the risk that you fancy going for rather than perhaps trying to play it too safe or, or you know, try and, fo- you know, focusing too much on, on those ownership stats. Yeah, like for me, it's it's really, you're looking at these ownership stats right now and I think you need to be a little bit cognizant of the fact that all the stats you see are last week's stats. Um, Aubameyang was 47% owned going into the last game week. He has already, it's Tuesday night, it's time of recording, he's well over 500,000 sales at this point. That's about one in six of his owners. That's going to go up even further. And so I think, you know, a lot of these combinations, your Salah, Sterlings, your Mane, KDBs, like these players are going to be picked up in pretty big droves. So don't overthink it and probably just pick the two that you think are going to score the most, not the ones that you think are going to be less owned or might give you some sort of advantage. I personally am holding on to Salah because I just happen to have him in my side and I'm not wildcarding. If I was brave and chasing upsides and looking at fixtures, yeah, I think I could totally see why you'd go for the City double up but just don't don't split hairs too much is pretty much what I'm saying to Mr. LFC Bootroom. 
Yeah, I, I think in this case, swording and shielding is something which perhaps comes into play later on in the season when the, the template, as it were, takes root. And then you've got the kind of the mix between the engaged and the non-engaged managers. You've got the dead teams that start to occur. At this point in the season, you probably have the majority of the manager base still involved, still playing. Um, wait until kind of after the international break and things will start to solidify a little bit. One thing I'd point out as well is that, okay, I mean, I've seen that he's removed, for example, separated Salah and KDB here. I mean, Salah's owned by 35% at the moment, near enough. Uh, KDB's owned by 32% near enough. Combine the two together, though, and just under 8% of managers own both of those players. So you may be looking at it thinking, oh, you know, these players can be so highly owned, they can be owned by everybody. Oh, no, I can't do that. Yeah, you can, because at this point in the season, we, we haven't got that built-in template. So having these sorts of players in combinations actually a hugely potent differential even if they do on the first look seem really boring to own but, I don't use the negative you, terms yeah but for what it's worth it will probably be in about 20 percent of teams come this weekend so it is kind of the yeah, time yeah. to you know you know, as as a, as a combination i mean so it's kind of it's it's worth jumping now while there's a lot of people jumping if you know there is a pair that you particularly fancy yeah, but that still means 80% of the game don't own Oh, yeah, it's good. That's what's geez. brilliant oh, about it. Well, I know, it's great, to be, it's great to be going ahead of 80% of the game. I agree. Yeah. That was the best thing about Salah getting that hat-trick in game week one is that like 70% of people didn't have him. You know, yeah, that's what's that. brilliant about the early stages, I think. Um, before we get kind of everybody jumps aboard kind of those huge life rafts uh, in terms of those huge players who are performing well. Cool. Next one, upside chasing. Oh, very good guess for this one. Uh, FPL Latics asks, when is it time to jump on and off an underperforming premium? Uh, do we hold on to players that accumulate lots of value from price rises each year for too long? He says he always seems to have this issue every year. And to be fair, I think we do as well to some extent. So, for example, I'm thinking about Vardy last year. I think we all, all three of us perhaps held on to him for a little bit longer than we should have. Uh, but one man who does not have an issue with this, who's ruthless with his premiums is Pranil. Um, how do you kind of conceptualize this question? What would you say to FPL Latics here? Uh, I'd say that fixtures matter when it comes to, uh, you know, these big hitters. And there's what I've, I've looked at some data and there's a considerable difference when they play against weaker op- opposition and stronger opposition, unless you're KDP who is consistent throughout. So what I'd say is if you're building, trying to build strategies this year, KDB sort of is sticking out as the glue guy who, who you keep through keep throughout. And in your head, you sort of preconceive that there's this one or two big hitter positions that I'd like to switch consistently because of the captaincy. So you're sort of not committing to, you know, going chaotic and, you know, making big hitter switches all over the place. You know, you have one glue guy in place uh, who's, uh, there's going to be a lot uh, to be done for his numbers to drop off. And then you have one or two positions which you're switching and don't worry about value too much. At the end of the day, I always say it's about, uh, you know, picking a Jimenez instead of a Timo Werner. And you, you it's about finding one player who's going to be uh, uh, one million lesser and he might even outperform the more expensive players. So don't worry about value too much. Can I ask you though, what about hits though in this sort of early stage of the season? Because I can see a lot of managers are taking hits. They're taking minus fours. We've seen it between sort of Sons and Brunos and or Bamiangs to De Bruyne's this this week. Would you would you say that's a little bit of a risk when you're talking about the premium assets? Because obviously we know that some of the premiums they can perform week in, week out, regardless of the opposition. Especially those guys taking minus eights, by the way. <laughs> no, I, I think uh, early season is actually one of the best times. Uh to take hits because if you're not wild carding, uh, 
you're setting up your team uh, long term and what i also mm-hmm. think this helps in in terms of is the butterfly effect so if you're not taking uh, you know a minus 8 this week and then there are still fires to be put out in your team what you're constantly doing on a regular basis is putting out fires in your team instead of taking and making aggressive moves uh, which enable you to you know make 20 30 yeah. points over the opposition so put out those fires in one go you won't think about it two weeks later and then move on That's it. I think proactive transfers is the main reason I started with Marshall on my bench, and the main reason I set up like I did in the first place. So that's why I took mine. Say pull the plaster off in the past. I've kind of gone, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I want to save the points. I want to do this, do this. And I just found myself, as you say, in a kind of a losing firefighting battle where I end up having to take a hit anyway. So get out of the way as soon as possible was my point of view. Let's hope all that kind of works out. I think that's a really, really good point actually about the butterfly effect. So one of my dilemmas right now is is whether I am going to take a minus four. As many people probably know, I'm a bit more of a cautious manager in terms of taking hits. I try and avoid them if I can and, and try and use the transfers I've got to to kind of make those decisions. But this week, it, it probably will end up being a minus four. So I'm going to probably take out St. Maximum because he's injured for Podence perhaps. And um, then I'm looking at Aubameyang to De Bruyne as well as a potential minus four. But that's the thing. If I'm like, oh, I'll keep the faith in Aubameyang because he's a premium, even though he's playing Liverpool. That just means I've got that transfer that I still want to make. I want to get in De Bruyne next week, won't I? And then there's probably going to be some other fire that I've got to put out for game week four. So I think that that does really help in terms of, you know, being aware that if you're going to avoid a hit one week, you, you might just be forced into that same hit the following week because you didn't make that move early enough. Yeah, so dragging us on to the next question is the question we've called Formation Station from Ujan Ghosh. And he asks, broadly, is 3-5-2 our go-to now? And he also mentions Werner and Jimenez being up front. Uh, Vardy Boys also asked us about Bamford. Dear me. Uh, so 3-5-2, I think definitely we started off the season uh, right back at the price pods thinking, oh, you know what? Yeah, it's, it's all about the midfielders. Screw the strikers. Don't care about them. They're bad value. Yada, yada, yada. And now it's the case. I just want every single striker there is going. I don't care what they look like. Don't care. I, I, just, want, I just want them in my team. I'm, I'm annoyed there's only three slots that I can actually have. Um, and uh, I mean, in terms of Werner and Jimmy, um, uh, Werner this week, Jimmy, the next five for Wolves are absolutely fabulous. So um, Jimmy has actually entered my team. Uh, Bamford as well has surprised Nick and I, um, who's not done a paddy this year. He's actually done pretty well. Um, but, I mean, it's it definitely does seem the case that there's so much sort of value, there's so many twists in the forward line at the moment, especially in yeah. terms of all price points, that it is tough to kind of sit there and think a 3-5-2 is, is the best thing, just because at the moment, at least, it looks like the, the strikers do provide you with that, that mixture of talisman hoods, talismanic nature, um, plus, obviously, two weeks of data, the output. Um, so, yeah, I, I wouldn't be looking at 3-5-2 at the moment. I'd kind of be thinking, yeah, a, a, a 7 million striker was 7.2 now, and Calvert-Lewin is outperforming the 7 million midfielder. Um, so, yeah, you've got to just follow your nose, as it were, in terms of this. And I'd just be kind of thinking, yeah, it's got to be, you've got to go with the free strikers, I think. Um, what do you guys think? Yeah, exactly. I think generally I've been critical of the first striking option over the past few years, saying there's been more value in defenders at the same price, but it's certainly not the, the time or place to be to preaching that, especially when we had these sort of record scoring goal weeks. You know, as you said, there's so many options right now, like so Bamford, Mitrovic, Mopay, Ings, Dominic Calvert-Lewin, Woods, all relatively cheap forwards, all scoring this week. You know, some of the ones, unfortunately, I own the more premium um, forwards like 
Werner and um, Vardy didn't score, so I didn't do as well this week, but I still backed them to also deliver. And you've even got the, some of the premiums like Kane as well also presenting themselves perhaps as FPL options that we haven't strongly considered. And with, with that in mind, you know, I'm not necessarily thinking about the 3 5 2. I think it's more about the 3 4 3, the, the traditional 4 4 2 of the FPL world, going for that sort of all-out attack, um, as many forwards as you can fit into your team. It definitely seems to be the, the zeitgeist right now. I, I agree. Uh, I think there are too many forward options. And just one name I'd like to add to the pool of players that you guys have mentioned, I'm strongly considering, is Gabriel Jesus as well. Aguero's not going to be playing for a while. So, yeah, there's a flurry of forward options. I see myself going 3 for 3 for sure. Yeah, so a big man, Bakar, uh, put Jesus into his uh, his wild cards and uh, got that last minute goal. He must have been celebrating that big time. <laughs> but yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I don't think he's been. I, I was expecting him to pop up a bit, a few, a bit more in the questions this week, and I'm glad that we've got onto him a little bit because 9.5 million is a route into that city attack. Um, I mean, obviously his finishing is, is is not great. It's like me after 10 beers, but still he is, um, you know, representative of that attack. And the long kind of held uh, adage was uh, that if Canaguero was out injured, then you bought Jesus and vice versa because they're nailed on in that team. Is there something that we're missing there with Jesus? I mean, I had him at the end of last season. He, I think one game he got me a goal and two assists, which was great. Last game of the season, he got, got the opening goal, but that was kind of it. It became the KDB show after that. But 9.5 million is a route into the City attack. If he's a nailed-on member of that City attack, surely that's uh, one we should be considering more, right? Uh, Anthony, what do you think about that and this whole kind of question? Um, okay, on the, the Jesus front, first of all, like of course he's a solid pick. It's just 9.5 genuinely seems a bit steep and it's just I guess the opportunity cost of picking him up at 9.5 for me is a little bit great but I guess right now I'm you know pretty keen on Timo Werner that may change after this week I guess if he blanks for a third week in a row I know circumstances and everything all things considered he has looked energetic but still hasn't actually finished a chance yet and I may start to get a little bit uh, Etsy about Chelsea as a concept almost and just move to Man City en masse and then he would be a perfect replacement. Uh, Pulisic and Zaj in the training pictures. He, they trained with the first team today, so that's interesting. Yeah, that that, that would help him. You wouldn't you wouldn't think Timo Werner's place is under threat, and that's the reason why I was quite happy to pick him. Whereas even you know after a few I guess disappointing games, you won't know what's going to happen with uh, Tom's man or Mason Mount for that matter in that side. So yeah, look, we'll stick with Werner for now and see what happens against West Brom. As for the formation question. Three four three three five two. Like, look, there's there's arguments for both of them. There's so many low grade strikers who are doing quite well at the moment. None of the ones that I own, for what it's worth, but there's certainly quite a few of them doing well. And also in terms of the midfielders, there's just there is five decent options there that you can afford instead of a balanced team. Given that there's so many of the okay, the elite ones are playing well. Okay, great, good start. And then you look at you know your Hamas Rodriguez's, your Zaha, your Foden, your Barnes, that mid price, and then at that. 5.5 mid, all of your Leeds guys basically who've been, you know, scoring about as many as they did in the whole championship season in two weeks between Klitsch and uh, Costa and then uh, Pedence as well. They've all been doing um, particularly well. So yeah, okay, you can have both of them. I can see why anyone would argue for both of those right now. Certainly not big at the back. 
No, certainly not, hey? Right, and the final question this week is a one for Pranel, but we can give our views after this. It's uh, from FPL Dougal, a.k.a. Billy the Kid. He says, Pranel, you've just hit... Well, he says late riser, but I'm going to call you Pranel because that's your name. Um, he says, you've just hit the wildcard button. What criteria did you go through to reach that decision? I suspect you've already gone through this on the FPL wire, so a little bit of duplication, but hopefully that's okay. And does this criteria change from season to season? And uh, desperately seeking Duzan, who we mentioned earlier, also asks, you know, do you put a point value on your wild card one thing i'd like to say is if if this wasn't uh covid circumstances or if this wasn't uh, a year in which we had you know probably blanks and doubles in game week 18 and 19 that we might need to plan for i would have uh wild carded on saturday without giving another thought the reason i was thinking and overthinking it until uh today afternoon when i pulled the plug was because I wanted to try saving it, but but then there are a few questions that I asked myself. Uh, am I confident of the glue guys and the budget picks that are emerging? Uh, you know, in the ecosystem of players that are there, yes. Uh, am I betting on what looks like sure things? Yes, because I'm betting on Man City and Bulls, and they've been pretty consistent in the past couple of years. You don't need to worry too much about those players when you're you know betting big on them. Am I using this wildcard as a nitro boost as well as a you know get out of jail card? Yes, because I, I had a double Saints defense. I had Dele Ali, who's not going to be in the fray. I had Bisuma, you know, who has a red card. Uh, St. Max, who was seemingly injured. I'm not interested in him in the 5.5 price bracket. So yeah, there were these considerations that happened. And I pulled a minus eight yesterday. And it, it seemed like I was, uh, you know, doing half measures. It seemed like a middle ground option where, yeah, I'm taking that minus eight this week, but I'm, I still have a lot of fires to put out. So I just thought that, you know what, I'll, I'll go the entire way and not play on the back foot, you know, just uh, putting off fires every week and play on the front foot and start making luxury moves. Tom was uh, holding his hand up there and counting the players that you were transferring out and you got to you got to five really fires that had to be put out. And I guess then you could say that, let's say, grabbing the initiative was another you know six or seven moves that you might have wanted to make. So yeah. was it just a case of ask not what your team could do for you, but what you could do for your team? I really wanted to save that wildcard because of future uncertainties, but it I just thought uh, the good thing is once I pulled the wildcard and you know, I started building the team, I started feeling a lot better about it once once I did it because uh, then I was like, okay, I have a team that I can play with and I can have fun with and I can make luxury moves mm. week on week. I was more skeptical than uh, most seasons this time because I wanted to save it, but it just made sense. Okay. I mean, to answer the uh, Desperate Seeking Duzan's question then, that sounds like you got five sort of issues there. So that's already kind of a minus uh, 16, isn't it? I mean, yeah. uh, if you add on an extra two, you're looking at minus 20 or minus 24. Like, yeah. at what point did it tip you? I mean, if I, I, I had three issues this week, which were Shea Adams, ASM, and uh, I wanted the Man City player. So that, for me, was enough to do a minus eight. Um, but you know, with the double, with the double Southampton defence, with the Suma, with all the things that you catalogue, I I think that I probably have pulled the wild card as well. Like, is it kind of a minus five moves you want to make? Is is that kind of the threshold you tend to set, or does it just depend season to season? So, so I think if there are fine uh, fires in your team uh, that are close to minus twelve, and on top of that, you can see a few moves that you're sure about that will work around the edge of your team. I think it's a good enough reason to pull the wild card. 
Sure. No, I think I'm, I'm, I'm still on the original track of trying to hold my wild card until that sort of game week 18, 19 business. Um, but I, I agree with you that I doggedly not be holding on to it just because I want to get there. I'd much prefer to get there in a decent OR and then have to use a few hits to work that out rather than getting there at a crap OR then using my wild card. Navigating that fine, but still having lost loads of points to people like yourself who have taken the initiative. And I just, I wouldn't have really hesitated if i had a similar sort of number of fires in my team uh, this yeah. week to it. And, I, and i'm sitting at 4.5 million or oh, you don't want to be taking a minus eight sitting on that no no yeah, things yeah. yeah things going to get better for you anyway you can get yeah. green arrows the next 10 weeks and be in a great mood so there you yeah. go right guys what do you guys think about about this sort of wild card business i mean j- just in general how do you think uh, Pernil's uh, reasoning sounds is that something that you agree with i have been tempted by the early wild card i know you were uh, sort of asking whether I was going to do it this week or suggesting perhaps I should go for it if I fancy it. But, like, I mean, looking at my Game Week 3 team, most of the fixtures are, are pretty rubbish. But then, like, some of the players that, you know, you could say maybe I would think about wildcarding out, like Vardy, you know, or even, like, Justin, even though he's had a good start because they've got Manchester City, you know, they then have really couple good fixtures in Game Week 4 and Game Week 5. And that was part of the reason that I put those guys in my team at the start of the season for those sort of plum home games against West Ham and Aston Villa. And I think Vardy could be like a really good differential for those particular game weeks. So I'm a little bit of a resistant to that. Same with some of the other, you know, rogues that are in my team, like Mitrovic. You know, he was in there because of his decent opening fixtures this week. He's got Aston Villa at home. Uh, Aston Villa a little bit improved uh, defensively but still I see that as you know a fixture where he could easily get some returns and you know obviously likes a Salah as well so it's actually um it's actually like when I look at my team there's only really a couple of players that I really want to take out the rest of them you know they don't have great fixtures but they're they're fine to sit there so I don't see any urgency at the moment for the game uh, to make the wild card but I think game week five was one that I was targeting um I have started targeting in terms of doing the wild card because there's certainly a number of moves that I could make that game week um you know with likes of Leicester having a fixture shift the likes of Manchester City also having a fixture shift even then I might start thinking about perhaps a you know a risky triple up on on Manchester City or something crazy like that perhaps could work for the game week five and it's it's also what I like about Game of Five as well as past the transfer window as well. So that's all closed. So then you don't need to worry too much about what's happening with your team. And you've also got, I think it's um, actually it's just after the international break. But you've got a little bit of, um, you know, a little bit of closure, I guess, in terms of the early team's form, who, who's good, who's looking good in the underlying metrics at this particular moment in time. We've only really got two game week's worth of data and it you know as we saw like i think it was the the best team in in game week one or the star team in game week one none of them returned in in game week two did they so um you know it's very early in terms of trying to identifying that team in that player form yeah look i i'd be pretty much copy pasting a lot about nick says like i would say i have quite a lot of kindling in my team but no particular fire just yet so the likes of matt doherty for example i I'm not too put off him just yet. It's a game against Newcastle, who just seriously struggled last week. Doherty himself has had a very good goal-scoring chance in the first game week of the season. He had an assist for a goal that was ruled out in the sec- in game week two as well. He isn't getting forward as much as I'd like to see. Um, certainly he wasn't in game week two, but at the same time, I'm not, I'm not classifying him as a fire, let's say. And I guess maybe if a lot of people maybe would call that a fire, and I guess if I'm taking that approach to the rest of my team, I'm just quite content with it. I'd always considered that uh, game week four would probably be the time I wildcarded uh, just after game week four going into just, okay, so the transfer deadline just about passes then. 
and also we have the international break so there is a chance if i wanted to make the most of price rises to try and do that but to be honest i'm, I'm i don't think i'm going to be too uh, obsessive about that because i think most of you know what you might see is the the money i would be gaining or losing i'm just going to probably absorb by buying mitchell who's probably going to be you know a he'll save me 0.3 on one of my 4.5 defenders and that pretty much sorts out most of the budgetary issue that i might have had otherwise so i'm just quite content with my side overall and i'm not going to rip it up just yet but if i had five things to move like uh panel had then yeah i would 100 percent have pulled the wildcard trigger cool i think we're verging into the final bit anyway but let's move on to the transfers and captains hoping that uh, games do go ahead obviously uh, we're record- at the time of recording we've just received the news that David Moyes and a couple of his first team players have gone down with COVID let's hope for the best and hope that this pod doesn't end up in the bin uh, like the one with Ben Crellin did for being completely irrelevant but hopefully the player- teams will go ahead because I've taken a minus eight Bruno's got a wild card and Stagg's made his transfers too a uh, bit of a spoiler uh, firstly let's let's go to Nick uh, what are you doing uh, what transfer are you looking to make and um, who's your captain going to be so I think I am leaning now towards the, the minus four. I think uh, St. Maximin um, is, is injured, so he's definitely going to go. And, and looking at the 5.5 million type options, there's a few of the Leeds guys look pretty interesting, but I think I'm leaning more towards Podent uh, just because of Wolves' fixtures, and he looks like a decent pick at that price point. So I think Podent will probably come in for St. Maximin, and then it's probably going to be Aubameyang out of the team as well. I'm, I'm jumping... I'm jumping on the wagon there and bringing in Kevin De Bruyne. I think it just has to be done, doesn't it? So it looks like it's probably going to end up being a hit. In terms of the, um, the captain, it's a bit of a differential captain, I guess, because I've got um, I've got on Timo Werner actually at the moment. So um, West Brom have been atrocious so far this season defensively. They've conceded more goals than any other club, and they've also conceded uh, joint most shots on target. So. It's going to be Werner, even though he hasn't scored yet. He's definitely got the pedigree, as we've seen in the Bundesliga, and he's had a bright start. So I think I'm going to go for a little bit of differential captain there um, as my captain pick. Cool. All right. Uh, Bruneau, we know you're wildcarding, uh, but where's your captain going to be? What's your thinking about that? So you're nodding along to Nick talking about Werner. Is that kind of similar for you? I know you captain game week one, for example. Are you going there again? Uh, no, I think I'm going to go with the City asset for sure. Uh, like you mentioned earlier in the pod, you know, Leicester don't bother defending. Justin is a really poor player. Uh, Castagna again doesn't defend too much uh, and uh, if, if City could score three goals against uh, Wolves, I wonder how many they can put across Leicester, so I'm definitely going to be captaining one of the Bruyne or Sterling That's actually quite interesting because I would say when it comes to those City players there, there isn't nothing to stop them scoring three, let's say, against Leicester and I, uh, I think we need to kind of keep that in mind sometimes, it's easy to think oh Leicester were a top team last season but there is definitely shades of what is good in the Premier League and City are just a cut above most teams uh, and they really do punish even the teams that are around them much more so than let's say Liverpool would. At the moment though my armband is on Timo Werner, um, okay six shots, five of them in the box, a pretty poor XG so far but I have liked his live and I've really hated uh, seeing uh, West, Bromwich, uh, West Brom so far this season. So that's where the armband currently is. But my transfer has already been made and that was Aubameyang to Kevin De Bruyne. And I did that after the Wolves game. So I, I wasn't doing it based on the Wolves game, but I was doing it to make sure that he wasn't injured or something before I pulled that particular trigger. Um, I made. Will I take a hit? No, not unless there's something um, pretty crazy happens uh, the rest of this week, let's say with West Ham or something. Cool, fair enough. Um, and I've uh, taken my insight, um, as I mentioned earlier on, hopefully the team, the games are going to go ahead. Um, but I basically did what I said earlier on, try to be proactive, try to 
set my team up without using that wild card. So it was a wild card saver. I removed Shea Adams, I removed ASM, and I removed uh, Aubameyang, and I've put in uh, Kevin De Bruyne, I've put in Raul Jimenez, and I've put in a 4.5, unfortunately, in Anguisa. That means that Suchek is now promoted to the first team. The um, reason I did that on Sunday night was because uh, Shea Adams was going to drop, and I would have been priced out. And if I'd have left it another night, then I'd have been 0.2 out. So it was kind of a calculated risk with a wild card in hand. Went for it. And I'm going to captain De Bruyne um, straight off the bat for the reasons we've spoken about. Um, I, there's a lot, been a lot of people actually pointing to Salah versus Arsenal um, and kind of saying, oh, have you seen how bad Arsenal have been against uh, against Liverpool over the last few years? Yep, I completely understand that. But I mean, this is Arteta's Arsenal now. And I, I think I, I find it very difficult to get excited about captaining a player against Arsenal at this moment in time just because the way we're setting up isn't as naive dare I say it as it was in the past I'm now condemning us to a 5-0 defeat of course um, but I just don't I, I just can't see it and I think maybe this is an example of looking at the data to go back to the main point of this pod and looking at the eye test and thinking to yourself okay right the historic data says this but what have you seen and how are, how have Arsenal been playing compared to how Leicester have been playing yeah like last year they were very good defensively this year they, they can't defend particularly well so it feels like kdb for me um and um, i'll probably give salad advice as a good default but i'm probably not going to captain them even though i can see why people would be going that way a big factor in the arsenal and salah captaincy i think is we need to see whether tna is going to be playing in that position or collapsing and i think that's a factor that might swing right away yeah it definitely if class is in that particular position i think salah could have a field day it would definitely change my own yeah. particular perspective on that Cool. So thanks, guys. Um, so we were Who Got Your Sister. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And if you're a new listener and enjoyed the pod this week, don't forget to hit that subscribe button and you can listen to us all season long. Yeah, the mini league code is CPSULF. And please leave a review of the podcast if you enjoyed. Uh, thank you very much. And we'll be back next week to survey the wreckage of game week three. If you have any correspondence, any addendums, thoughts, clarifications, or ideas, get them into who got the assist at gmail.com. And thanks so much for joining us, Pranil Late Riser. You can find him on Twitter at Late Riser12, all one word. Thanks. Thanks for having me, guys. It's been a pleasure. And keep doing the good, that, good job that you guys do. Yeah, thanks very much, Pranil. Thanks for your time. Thank you. It's uh, what two, almost two a.m. now, is it? Two fifteen. Two fifteen. <laughs> two fifteen. <laughs> enough to sit to sink one more scotch before bedtime. Uh, eh? uh, about the time a game ends. Yeah, okay. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks very much for your time. Um, and uh, listeners, we hope this is you. Think about criteria to buy in players for this season. Good luck in game week three, and we'll speak to you next week. Goodbye. Get that correspondence in, bye. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so good. Cut that. I give it until game week eight. <laughs> um, no man, it's gonna the, the the river is just gonna start to overflow into the mm, inbox. You know, you're gonna wake up and it's like a hundred emails. Just mail. Just I'm excited really... to see what happens with the section. In the future. Yeah, yeah. Like, I'm kind of to be honest. Like the, the tension I'm trying to build up with the section has just become into a tension about the section. Yeah. <laughs> it's like beg people for correspondence. Yeah. This was the first one that like came itself. I just <laughs> that's soliciting. I'd call that. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, thanks, Pino. That was really good. Oh, it's a goal. Who got the assist? Who got the assist? Sports Social Podcast Network.